With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Welcome back to Counterculture. You are here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now is former MP for the Alliance Party and lawyer for the Pacific Region, lead lawyer for the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms, Matt Robson. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Thank you very much, Marie. Good to be here. It is great to have you here. And I was just saying to you before we got started, I met somebody that has done some work with you around the areas of peace and disarmament, and I was not aware that you had moved into that area. It sounds utterly fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms. Okay. Well, the background uh, for my involvement, of course, I'm a lawyer and it's an association of lawyers, though it's got non-lawyers in it as well, people with expertise in disarmament. Uh, But when I was a member of parliament, as you mentioned, uh, one of the cabinet responsibilities I had was uh, Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control, which, although it's uh, at a low profile after New Zealand became nuclear free, uh, because there was a sense that, well, New Zealand was nuclear free, what else do we have to do? Uh, it was, if you think, if you like, it's one of the key portfolios for New Zealanders because of the attachment uh, of such a great majority of New Zealanders who do not want uh, nuclear weapons. But going beyond nuclear weapons uh, is to the question of the bigger question of disarmament itself uh, in a world that uh, is awash both with weapons and what comes with those weapons, conflict and war and of course we have two major wars going on at the moment and in the back one in the ukraine and one in the uh, the palestine israel and uh, beyond those of course are many many centers of uh, tension so back to your your question uh, what the uh, lawyers try to do is to focus on those uh, steps that have already been taken such as the non-proliferation treaty uh, the uh, recently introduced uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which New Zealand has signed, uh, but the major nuclear powers uh, have not. Um, so it lacks uh, force, but it's still uh, a treaty which has got the support of the majority of the world have no nuclear weapons uh, whatsoever. And so the lawyers focus on the, 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 the key um, legal instruments uh, but beyond that, they also look at uh, such things as the other uh, disarmament uh, mechanisms uh, on mining, uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons, anything that comes into that framework. But if you like, with the nuclear weapons is, of course, the ultimate uh, stupidity of humankind. Not all of us, but uh, who want to destroy us. And in fact, it's a little bit interesting that with the recent death of Henry Kissinger, former uh, Secretary of State for the United States. Uh, he was one of the key fosterers of nu- of spreading nuclear weapons. Uh, he played a big role in the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Israel, undeclared, Pakistan, uh, outside of the uh, NPT, uh, plus in many other conflicts. So uh, I'm giving that just as an example of the 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 centrality of this issue. Now, of course, for most New Zealanders, all of us have to get up in the morning and we hope that the world will be okay in our sphere, but it intrudes uh, into us. And right at this moment above you and I are satellites which control uh, nuclear weapons aimed at the whole world Um, and (laughs) um, frightening aspect is quite a few of the nuclear powers and the, the lawyers to focus on this, uh, they have uh, first strike policies. And that's, if anyone understands, that's frightening. So, well, we'll use our nuclear weapons, even if we're not attacked by uh, nuclear weapons, if we need to. So the biggest armed uh, alliance, military alliance in the world, uh, NATO, of which now New Zealand is a global partner, uh, that has a first strike policy. Uh, yeah. Russia used to have a no first strike. So in other words, you have to attack us before we ever use nuclear weapons. 
they abandoned that uh, in the tumultuous years after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and the issues with NATO and Europe. Uh, China and France doesn't have it. It's the other nuclear, and Britain doesn't have it as a nu- they're both nu- uh, NATO members. The only uh, declared nuclear power, or the, or the one in the uh, NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, China, that has a no-first strike policy. And what about North Korea? Well, no, North Korea, uh, well... It, it, it <laughs> officially run officially. Well, the, th- the thing is, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, possibly they, they, they do have a first strike, uh, but they are very small... Uh, mm. Small power, and there's something they, you know, they have a nuclear weapon. They, they they could do damage. They of course uh, have it, and South Korea has nuclear weapons in abundance, not their own, but under the uh, United States um, uh, nuclear umbrella. And the, in fact, it's useful that you point that out because I I talked about centers of conflict, and. In our conversation, I'm drawing on the fact that as the Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control, my job for New Zealand was to put strongly to the world that we wanted nuclear disarmament for everybody, not just one country, not just North Korea or this country, that country, all of them. But uh, in terms of centres of conflict, I mentioned Ukraine, I mentioned Palestine, but you brought up North Korea, the Korean Peninsula is a time bomb. And the Japan, uh, which is not supposed to have any offensive uh, military capacity, is the ninth, seventh or ninth biggest arms buyer in the world, has an enormous military capacity. Uh, it has nuclear weapons on its soil, uh, aimed not just at North Korea, but at China. So they aim them back, of course. And on the Korean Peninsula, uh, the is only an armistice. So most of us, uh, have, understandably, have forgotten that war. Mm. We, we look at Gaza now, but the war, if anyone ever studies the whatever happened on the Korean Peninsula, where New Zealand has soldiers, and just because we're having a conversation, <laughs> it mm. leads into other things. As New Zealanders, uh, Australians, New Zealanders, this part of the world, we have to realise we've been involved in almost every major conflict. Small as we are, uh, we, we've been... So we've got soldiers buried in uh, Korea. We've got, this is not to put blame on those soldiers, but we've got victims of that war uh, who, you know, our military were there, their military were there, deeply involved. So back to what that is. So North Korea, yes, has developed a nuclear weapon, but the South, Korea, is armed to the teeth. And beyond that, in terms of trigger points, uh, is China, which knows that, uh, if you like, a bit like the Ukraine, when the Russians had a look at the Ukraine, they were considering the Ukraine as the gateway for anybody who comes to, to our country, Napoleon, Hitler. I mean, whether they're right or wrong, that's how they see it. And the Chinese see Korea as a staging point for an attack on them. So you can see how things multiply. So we're, what's New Zealand's role in that? Uh, and then I'll come back to the original question. You had the uh, International Lawyers Association um, but as a as a member of that organisation uh, from from New Zealand, uh, and looking at the role that we can play both in that association and in the wider disarmament uh, issues, uh, what's our the question that New Zealand has? Uh, what's our role? Do we join one of the the parties? Uh, do we line up with NATO and the increasing polarisation between the NATO countries, Russia and China, and not just Russia and China? But all of those countries that either ally with or try to stay neutral, all those countries in Africa, all those countries in Asia, uh, and it links in. And I'll come back to getting up in the morning, you know, people go to work, they can't concentrate on these things. But our political leaders and organisations that I belong to need to because uh, wars suddenly occur and you're dragged into it, whether you like it or not. And New Zealand uh, is in the situation where we need to take this uh, very seriously. So finally, I'll conclude this very long harangue, is that the International Lawyers Association plays a small part, uh, but I hope a useful part, in focusing on what are the uh, what, are, what are already the instruments that could lead us back from this abyss 
this uh, because you, you sometimes feel when you're talking about it, people's eyes can glaze over. Oh, nuclear weapons? That's, you know, what, I mean, what is what's that got to do with me? But when you're involved in this work and what I just mentioned to you, I know in my head I can visualize the satellites which are coordinated mm -hmm. to strike with nuclear weapons. And in the case of the, the war in the Ukraine, uh, nuclear weapons have been in play. Not just, I mean, there's been a lot in our media about uh, President Putin's uh, position on you know, nuclear weapons, but we've seen nothing on the fact that NATO has declared its enmity, its absolute hostility to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which we've signed up to. Uh, in their documents, which once again, I don't expect everybody to go rushing and reading, but all our political leaders need to, because we've signed up to it. In the NATO documents, the latest one, the latest declarations, uh, and then going back, uh, they castigate the, the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. They say, this can't be. We're the ones that are going to save the world. We're going to keep our first strike capacity, which is just saying, we'll hit you with nuclear weapons. Now, behind that, and it's actually illegal, so I'm getting close to it, the, the lawyer association we do draw on this it's illegal to threaten and mm -hmm. just take it to a, a normal person or average person if we're threatened you come to my house with a gun that's a crime you mightn't use it but you're you're threatening me it's a crime under the crimes act in international law too it's a crime it's actually a crime <laughs> to threaten people with war and so this saying we've got a first strike and our opinion of the, the Lawyers Association, it's a breach of international law. The problem you get that with international law, it's not like our domestic law where you can call the police. There's no 111 to call. The big powers either use international law when it suits them or they ignore it. Um, lady of so so these discussions, where do they all play out? Do they play out at The Hague or they are played out at treaties? I mean, how do you get in front of or have influence towards right. to have these conversations? Well, you can. Or, well, good you brought up The Hague. So the uh, International Court of Justice is in, in The Hague. and But it's a, it's a tricky business because um, countries have to agree to its jurisdiction. Uh, and then some have a reservation. Uh, well, we'll agree to a jurisdiction except for these, 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 these points. A prime... Um, uh, culprit in ignoring the International Court of Justice uh, is the United States of America. Um, and you know, we're, what are we? I can't re never remember. We're friends or allies. I think we're back being an ally. Um, and so the International Court, uh, which has, uh, I think, about nine justices, I've actually studied there, they um, are drawn from all around the world, but always there's always a uh, united states uh, judge and you know other countries that don't like it they have the same system but you'll often see a one judge against a, a ruling and the rest of them saying to give an example uh the small country of nicaragua in central america the united states mined its harbors uh, they supplied weapons to a counter-revolutionary terrorist force. I think it's the Sandinistas there, isn't it? Uh, well, the Sandinistas government, the Contras mm. were armed by the Reagan government and others. They created havoc. They mined the harbours. The Nicaraguans, small, took it to the International Court. Your question on who enforces it. The International Court ruled in their favours and said to the United States, hey, that's against the law. You can't go and put mines in somebody's harbour. You can't give guns to people to attack their hospital, schools, their government, invade their country. Um, and the United States gave the fingers. They've been ordered. They've never paid the money. They've never paid it. They just ignored it. So, you can, and then the other body which has a big say these days in international law is the United Nations. So, the General Assembly can pass a resolution. Well, they have. The, the pleasant situation in Palestine, Israel, they have passed resolution after resolution that, that Israel must withdraw from the occupied territories, that there must be two states, Palestine and Israel, ignored. Um, and so many things ignored. So, but it's still, in terms of lawyers, argues, this is law. The, the, the world has spoken. The Security Council can pass it. But if just one of the powerful countries says, up yours for the rhubarb season. Um, There's not a lot that can be done. Uh, I'll just give another example which is very close to us and which we keep a close eye on as lawyers. 
uh, many of my examples, you know, it could be other countries. I'm more familiar with what where New Zealand is in the world and Australia and the United States. But the current conflicts with China. So there are uh, aeroplanes off the coast of China, of Australia, running into Chinese military aircraft. There are ships sailing up and down the, the Chinese coast. And then there's disputes over uh, which is which is territory owned by China, which is international waters. To some extent, it doesn't matter. If you're that close to a large power and they feel threatened, it's a danger whether you've got international law on your side or not. And here's where big countries pick and choose. So, for instance, you can imagine if the Chinese Navy was sailing up and down the Californian coast, mm. it would be hell to play, whether they were on the 12-mile limit or the 13-mile limit. Well, that was sort of one of the questions that I was going to have, because obviously we are based in the Pacific, and you know those conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East can feel so far away when we do have issues in our own backyard. And I guess you can see why the Australians have signed up to AUKUS where, I mean, I think that area of dispute is just north of the Coral Sea, isn't it? And there Well, is... no, no, it's far, it's, far, it's, it's far further. I mean, the Coral oh, Sea, okay. it's 2000. I mean, the Solomon Islands. Yeah. But the Chinese like. have just gone and uh, signed an agreement with the Solomon Islands, a cooperation agreement, haven't they not? They, they signed a number of economic agreements and they signed a policing agreement, um, which they would help with the... the the police force of the Solomon Islands. There were there were riots there. There were attacks on Chinese businesses. There were all sorts of things going on. And uh, I'm not here to say whether they're right or wrong. They're a sovereign country. Nobody cared less about the Solomon Islands until I mean, on else in terms of New Zealand, Australia, the United States, until they signed an agreement with China. We had to back off the the government under Jacinda Ardern. They went berserk. I had discussions with some of the the ministers. They went berserk. Uh, the Chinese are coming. Well, actually, there were a few Chinese closer to there. The French are coming. The French have got this most enormous military base in Tahiti. The Solomon Islands is 2,000 kilometers from China. It's 2,000 equidistant to New Zealand. Um, so it's not actually that close. The Coral, Coral Sea is not is not that close to what China. I'm not here as an advocate for what the Chinese do or they don't, you know. But what I'm saying is that we very rarely put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else and, and um, often quick to say, well, they're being aggressive. The question which we in New Zealand uh, comes to the fore, because we're also a colonial country, country settled by colony, Australia, we've got historical issues to, to deal with, of course. And the, the present, and we'll come to that, I'm sure, in your case, the present uh, situation with the government has brought it to the fore. What is the place of Maori? What is the issues? What are the historical issues of a colony? And we were a colony. Australia was a colony. Uh, Palestine's got a colony from the British mandate through to what's happening now. These issues come to the fore. And in the question of the Pacific, um, it's got to say, have a look. China was a colony. They were trampled over by every uh, European power and the United States who had a part of China. Then the Japanese invaded. And then, so they, they hold very strongly, you will never be a colony again. In the Pacific, the French are there. They're a colonial. NATO has come back to the Pacific. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in its documents now, says the Pacific is a key part. To people in that area, and it should include us, they should be looking and saying, well, hang on a minute. It's not the 19th century. What on earth are most of these issues being disputed by European powers and even even the Americans? I mean, they're right across the Pacific, but they have a big role to play here. So just back to your question, we have a look at you know what China is doing. We have to look at what we're doing. We have mm. to look at what the NATO powers are doing and what is at the core of this conflict to go back to uh, Korea, because much is focused on North Korea, South Korea, and that. And in New Zealand, uh, in our political circles, we don't have an in-depth, serious discussion and knowledge. I can bet if you bring on to this uh, channel, most of the MPs, I could be wrong, I'm happy to be proved wrong, they would not have a clue on the issues of the Korean Peninsula that go back right to what we mentioned, the Korean War, go back to the Japanese. And politicians who are going to be involved in this have to understand it. They've got to put themselves in the position of the North Koreans, who they look at it, is they're the ones threatened. And therefore, we're going to keep a nuclear weapon. I negotiated 
I had talked with North Korea and South Korea on the question of a nuclear-free zone. And I, in my naivety, was extolling the fact New Zealand is nuclear weapon-free. New Zealand has got a treaty of Rautaponga and we don't have nuclear weapons and we don't have ships sailing through, which is actually a bit of a lie because Australia has signed up to allowing uh, the United States has nuclear bombers in North Australia. It has ships visits which carry nuclear weapons, even though they're part of the Treaty of Rotonga, and that's a that's a case for lawyers as well. I think they're in breach myself. But back to, back to this question. But when I said this to the North Koreans, they just they were very polite, but they just laughed at me. They said we saw Libya, and we saw they gave up their nuclear weapon. They're in ruins. We saw Iraq, and they don't have a nuclear weapon, and now their country is in ruins. Our adversaries have nuclear weapons. They said so. The only thing stopping them invading us is we have a nuclear weapon. Right or wrong, it's important to understand how they see the world threatening them. We persuade the world, them threatening the world. But actually, in terms of military force, the North Koreans have a very big land army, but they haven't got enough petrol to get their trucks to the south. <laughs> yeah, the resource, resourcing is a slight issue. Anyway, I've got a little bit away, but I'm just trying to draw. No, no, it's it's an area of of conflict, and we are involved because when uh, now that the uh, this talk about the Americans coming back into the Pacific, I've said to my colleagues, I've said to them, they've never left. Mm. They never left. They may not. They may have suddenly discovered they need an embassy in the Solomons. I mean, the Solomons are probably quite clever. Sign up with the Chinese, and suddenly everybody's offering you embassies, Mm. money. Play the game. Well, I was in American Samoa in January. That I mean, they still have a base there in military personnel there. So they they have not left. They've been in the Pacific the whole time. <laughs> What's Hawaii? So, you know, so, the, so you yeah. come to the question of the Chinese and the Spratly Islands. This is the thing the Chinese have said. This is ours. Well, they're they're disputing. These are the islands the, north of Japan. Is that correct? No, the Spratlys are uh, uh, off the coast of uh, Vietnam. Ah, oh, those no, those and, were the ones, and, and yes, and that's the Philippines of, claim part of it. That's the, the one. Yeah, yeah the Vietnamese claim part. And they have, and, part, yeah? and is that those the islands in which they have built a large they've base? Built, they've built a base, and uh, they've claimed one island. Uh, you know, it's it's a little way from Chinese coast, but no further than uh, Nauru and uh, Cook Islands, which New Zealand has a military. Yes, but it's smack well, bang in the middle of um, shipping routes, from what well, I understand. Well, well, here's the thing. Yes, 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 it is. And um, and the, the 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 it's gone to a dispute tribunal and the, the Chinese ruled against. But international law comes back, so the Americans kick up a big fuss. It's a little pot calling the kettle black because all the Chinese do is say, "Here's all the international court judgment which you uh, dis- disobeyed. We disagree with this." And then they say, "You're talking about the law of the sea. The United States won't sign the law of the sea." The Law of the Sea Treaty, which we've signed, everybody else has signed, or most countries, they won't sign it. So they're trying to invoke the Law of the Sea and say the Chinese are in breach of the Law of the Sea. They're not a signatory. The Chinese are saying, what do you, you know, you have Hawaii. We don't poke our nose and say, I mean, Hawaii was taken in 1898 for the 50th state or whatever it was. It's an island in the Pacific. Um, It was taken. (laughs) It didn't ask to join the United States. Mm. Western Samoa. Now, now, this is not to say the Chinese are right or wrong. I'm just saying to put yourself in this. We, we in New Zealand, it would be very important to stop being hypocrites. We're absolute hypocrites in life on, on these yeah. issues. And we waffle and waver. But if we really want to be a force in the world, we've got to call things as they are and be genuinely independent in our mm. uh, alliances and who we line up with. Well, speaking of calling things how they are, in my little dive, deep dive uh, on you, Ukraine, you in 2022 happened to um, seem to annoy somebody in the Ukraine because you appeared on a list of uh, Russian propagandists. And, I feel and, there's a story there, Matt. <laughs> well, I followed the the issues of Ukraine for a very long time, both when I was in uh, Parliament. And uh, I never, I don't read Russian. I've never, I've been to Moscow once for a parliamentary trip. I didn't meet anybody important. I was just a backbencher. Uh, Boris Yeltsin was in power. Um, 
so I've never had any 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 links with much with formally with with Russia, but uh, I follow events. And uh, in terms of the of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and NATO, I was very much focused. And what alarmed me, and because it alarmed so many commentators in the world, Western commentators, not just Russia, was the growth of NATO. So suddenly you had the dissolution of Russia. No reason the Warsaw Pact, which was the Russian dominated uh, group of Eastern European countries that dissolved. There was no threat. There was no longer a massive Soviet Union to be told we're going to come down and kill us in our beds. But suddenly NATO starts expanding, taking more and more countries. And then you th- think about it from the Russian point of view, you get a bit alarmed that closer and closer to our border, not just the biggest military alliance in the world, but nuclear armed. And then along comes the issues of the Ukraine, uh, which are complex. They're complex. We make them simple. A whole whole range of different nationalities within one territory, territory which has shifted backwards and forwards between Poland, Hungary, Russia. Um, So there's minorities questions in not just the Russians. The Russian speakers are about 30%. You've got Polish speakers. You've got Hungarian speakers. You've got conflicts between the Ukraine and and, um, you've got the Nazi history of Ukraine, where a whole range of them fought on the side of the Nazis, as they did in the Baltic countries. So these issues are complex, and they come forward. And suddenly, uh, when the Russian army crosses the border in uh, February 2022, we're told that this is, oh, this has suddenly happened. Russia woke up one day and uh, had a war. The late unlamented on my part, Henry Kissinger, was an opponent on the same grounds that I had, that this was foolish to push NATO to have a coup he called it a coup in 2014, overthrow the elected government, which is what I pointed out, the elected government. The United States was involved in that, NATO was involved in that. And then the arming began of the Ukraine. And Angela Merkel, uh, the late Chancellor of Germany, and the former President Hollande, Francis Hollande, they, they negotiated the treaty in the Ukraine to have the Russian-speaking areas, 30% of the population, as autonomous republics within the Ukraine. The Russians agreed to that. The Russian government agreed to that. They said yes. They didn't ask to take it over. They said just make sure that they got their might have their Russian language and their well, a bit like you know, in Switzerland. So it was quite a good agreement. But what does Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande told us? The sort of things that I was saying got put on this death list is that we just use this as a breathing space to build up the Ukraine to a massive army. I mean, there's not it's not little Ukraine. It's 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 massively armed with latest modern tanks and missiles and guns and an army, um, and they kept pounding. They broke the agreement on Minsk. They kept pounding uh, the Donbass areas. So before the Russians came in, and we, our television was screaming with Russians kill people, uh, and you know they did kill people. Then <laughs> this bombing. There was a war going on, which was nobody talked about. 14,000 people, not my figures, the United Nations observers and the European observers, 14,000 Ukrainians killed. A civil war was going on. So the Russians uh, intervened, right or wrong. Now, back to my international lawyer. lawyer international lawyers argued, were they were they justified? Uh, was it a self-defense, such as Israel is claiming in the Gaza? Or was it aggression? It was complex. And I, I tried to point out that we hadn't had a discussion in our parliament on the history, no context. And that's got me on the list because I didn't just say Russians at fault. Uh, I was, and the research material, the commentary I was relying on wasn't Russian. C- Professor Jeffrey Sachs, Columbia University, international expert, uh, expert in the issues of Russia and Eastern Europe said this war is wrong we provoked this war he didn't he didn't approve of what russia did he said i think they're they shouldn't have crossed the border but he pointed out the context uh, a, a, a colonel baud who is uh, jacques baud you can get him on the internet uh was a swiss intelligence officer in nato fluent russian speaker he came out and said no no russia didn't start this war we did and he's a nato he was a nato intelligence officer and so there were various people with different views. And my point was, uh, and I took it up with many of my ex-colleagues in the, the New Zealand Parliament, and they just ignored me. Um, well, they didn't ignore me. They, they attacked me. 
Uh, so I was suddenly a Russian puppet. That disturbed me as well, because what it said to me, we're back in the situation in New Zealand that, you know, before our time and the, and the Cold War was raging, my parents were there. If you had a country point of view, you were suddenly a communist agent or a red or something. So you couldn't have a discussion. And on the Ukraine, if you say, well, there's other viewpoints, not just one, maybe not two, maybe there's three or four, but let's talk about the history. The conversation is closed down. You're just repeating Russian propaganda points. And I thought that was sad because the only way you get good policy is to have discussions, to allow other points of view, to do some research. When I talked talk to actually the, minister, the person who was the Minister of Disarmament and Arms Control, my old job, Phil Twyford, he's a friend of mine. I asked him if he'd read the Minsk agreements. He said he had, but I could tell that he didn't know, he didn't, he didn't understand one thing about them. He knew nothing about the history of the Ukraine. He knew nothing of the role of the Azov Battalion. Nothing, just what was given to him as talking. Talking about Russian propaganda. That's what MFAT handed him here. This is what you say. That's not good enough, in my opinion. It's a complex historical issue. And it's the same with what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Complex issues. So talk about them. Go into the history. Uh, and I have seen very little evidence and it's something that grieves me that our present parliament that i might be wrong i hope i'm wrong it's so arrogant to know what all of them think and what they do i've seen very little evidence in the past parliament of doing deep research on these issues and if i can just go to nato how many new zealanders know we're a global partner of nato it's a big mm. deal if you sign up to the biggest military alliance in the world with a, a set of objectives they've named russia as an enemy an enemy, China as an enemy, in the NATO documents and the discussions and in the uh, the NATO summits, which Jacinda Ardern went to Madrid, 2020-21, I think, and uh, Chris Hipkins went to Latvia uh, in 2022. Was it 2023? Maybe it was just 2023. <laughs> I can't believe it's almost 2024. He went to Latvia signing up to this doctrine now we haven't had a discussion in the parliament <laughs> as it they've to be fair the the previous labor government weren't big on discussion in parliament on many matters Matt. so they they really were just continuing a trend I, they? I mean that i mean what you've just described you could apply over to so yes, many things that have happened in this country in the last six years and it actually shows me as a democracy how far we've fallen in, in the sense, in terms of our discourse, where everything that you've said, I found quite fascinating. I've, you know, the research I'd done, and I know some Russian friends, I have some Russian friends, and they literally told me exactly what you've just told me. And they're too terrified to say anything because the political narrative yes. was set that this country was pro Ukraine. And if you said anything outside of that narrative, you were on the opposite side of the conversation uh, exactly. and no, open no, open to ridicule. No, I take your point. Look, we, we may. Perhaps, perhaps another uh, mm. another conversation. Allow me, but we may, even if you and I or other people had a different viewpoint, we should defend the concept of discuss these things, put them Absolutely. up in the parliament. And one of the jobs I would say of members of parliament is even to play devil's advocate. Let's say they think this is an important. I'm on this side. However, here's here are some of the arguments of the other side. Think about them. Uh, discuss it. And that shutting down of conversation, you mentioned Russia. Yes, yes, I've, I've had Russian New Zealanders who probably uh, no one knows that they could be completely on the side of the Kiev government. That's not the point. They're frightened to open their mouth because if, if they have a, some other information, they'll also call you a Russian puppet, etc. That's a state of censorship and that's mm -hmm. a state of terror. And you're probably thinking of the big issues like COVID and others of whether or not uh, we well, there's so many. Even even your friend Phil Twyford, I mean, he got he, they, there was that pro-Palestinian march, and he went there to express his views and his, I'm sure, I think as a citizen, but as his capacity um, as a um, former minister. And I thought what he had to say was relatively balanced, and he was literally booed off stage and had to be escorted away. And I saw that as 
exceptionally sad, a really sad indictment for New Zealand. And and perhaps if you shift it to take the debate, because the other thing as a member of parliament and as a minister, I was minister for prisons, try to have a debate on the issues of what causes crime. And you could get the same treatment that if you put forward issues you you were accused, often by members of other parties, of being soft on crime. I would say those people were soft in the head, not wanting to actually discuss the re- the real issues of what drives crime. Um, and but and crime was one where you got shut down, and and members of parliament were frightened to be seen as soft on crime, and therefore take terrible decisions for popularity. No way to govern. No way to have a country which works on rational principles and and as a democracy. Uh, it's it's censorship in every sense of the word. Mm. So let's segue into the current coalition. And you talked about before the importance of reading history, and it's one of the things I've like learned as I've gotten older. It's incredible uh, what you know, life experience brings you, but also I've read a lot more history as I've gotten older. I find it utterly fascinating. And particularly what you you described before with Russia, um, the current Russian situation, you know, I I was a teenager during Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, I was an exchange student to the United States. Um, I literally flew out to the United States the day that Jeffrey Palmer was announced as our prime minister after David Longy had uh, stepped down. And I went, I got assigned to an American, a family on American Air Force Base from New Zealand. So you can imagine at that particular time, it was a little prickly uh, in that location. So I learned a lot then. And then I, you look now to uh, Putin and Biden. And I just wonder, before we, before we dive into our current political situation, what are your thoughts on the comparisons between the sort of Reagan-Gorbachev versus politi- Putin-Biden? sort of standoffs, right. same, different, more dangerous, less dangerous? Oh, far more dangerous. I mean, the, the, the thing about the Reagan-Gorbachev is that there was a, a certain triumphalism in America, you know, um, capitalism, one, communism, being devanction, just nothing to do with it. The Russian system, in my opinion, just collapsed under its own weight. And if you actually read history... You could go back to someone like the founder of the Russian Bolshevik Party, or one of them, uh, or, or he wasn't the founder, he was, but Leon Trotsky, wrote extensively on the fact that if Russia continued under the path of Stalin and developing a huge bureaucracy, it would collapse under its own weight, couldn't possibly, it would just implode. He, he said that, as I'm saying, point of reading history, he was writing about that uh, in the 20s and his opposition to Stalin and bureaucratization of the Soviet Union. So he said eventually it can it can do things, it can develop because it takes the state resources and it, it industrializes, but it stifles all initiative. It stifles under the weight of the bureaucracy. And that happened. So they sort of collapsed under their own weight. But put that aside, um, Reagan and Gorbachev, I think forced by public opinion in both countries, that let's get this sorted, let's stop all this going to war. So there was a Whatever people stood on the questions, there was a great hope that there was no need anymore to have these massive military forces lined against each other, threatening the whole world. That was the hope. And even Reagan, I mean, I'm a great, so many, I mean, we mentioned the Contras in Nicaragua. He was responsible for that sort of policies that Henry Kissinger follows. But he also was moved. There were statements by Reagan saying, when he became aware we're going to kill ourselves, we've got to do something. (laughs) There was a great hope. Uh, at the present with, uh, well, it was Biden or Trump before him and, and, and Putin, is that clearly a decision has been taken, uh, was taken in the United States at the highest level to go after Russia. So then when you say that, the, a lot of people think, oh, you, you support Putin. Well, no, I'm talking about countries, what they're making decisions. If I was in Russia, would I be a member of Vladimir Putin's party, I doubt. I'm a socialist. I'm not religious like he is. I'm not a nationalist. Sort of thing. That's not the point. His country has got documents in its hand which say we want to split Russia up. There's books written on it. There's the. That's what these people got to read. All the Foreign Affairs Journal, all the decision-making think things they call think tanks in the United States. The Russians read that. They see that they're a target. China has been declared a target. We want to take China down. Now, um, 
that's not the Reagan-Gorbachev period, which was detente and which was, we don't need nuclear weapons, let's move. And even Reagan, they negotiated back to my uh, talk of the International Association of the Lawyers Against Nuclear Weapons. They signed treaties. They signed the, the Limitation Strategic Arms, which is called START, which has been abandoned now. But under under both Bush, Bush Jr., and it didn't just start with uh, Biden, Bush, and Obama, the great peace candidate, the greatest spending on nuclear weapons America's ever had under him. And and drone. He's very fond of a drone too, Barack. And 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 uh, killing people, extrajudicial killings. Let's let's kill Marie and Matt Robson. They're talking at the moment. Send a drone. Um. So yes, it's a very dangerous period. It's a very different uh, period. And behind that is a confused public. And that's why they pay a lot of attention to getting us worked up. So in New Zealand, the Russians are, are instead of talking about what 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 could New Zealand have done? New Zealand could have brought rationality to that and say that could the government could take a position. Well, we're against the Russian army crossing the border. Fine. But let's have a talk about all the issues. Let's have a talk of what was tried at Minsk. Let's have a talk about what President Putin put up in 2021 before the war to say, look, we don't have to have this. Honour the Minsk agreements. Ukraine won't join NATO and threaten us. Um, have some new... Let's talk about it. Shut it down. Mm. No discussion. And nothing in our newspaper saying, oh, here's, here's a proposal by the dreaded evil uh, Putin. But, oh, it's, it's got some sensible points in it. The Western powers... This, uh, this, we get a lot of history. One of the things that I was accused of by, by representatives of New Zealand media, they interviewed me on the, the question of my opinion because they wanted someone who was, I was different from what everybody else was saying, just a unanimous war, Russia is wrong. Um, I was accused of supporting you know, appeasement, that I would support Hitler's drive to these. So here's another stupid analogy that Russia was the equivalent of Germany, which had a declared policy of conquering the whole of Europe. Russia doesn't have that declared. That we might be suspicious that they want to, but there was no policy like that. And also, what they were leaving out, these ignorant people who interviewed me, I could tell, I'm, I didn't want to be arrogant, but I suppose I was, I felt they were ignorant, that the period of appeasement, that Western governments were seriously talking with Hitler they were negotiating with him. They were reading his statements. They weren't, they were saying, and many of them, including Churchill, were saying what a statesman he was, how he dealt with the problems of Germany, the labor problem. The, the labor problem was smashing the trade unions. <laughs> no trade unions in Germany. Hitler, they were very, all the Western, many of the Western leaders saying, what, what a great statesman. He's, he's dealt with the labor problem. And they wanted to turn him against Russia. They wanted his to go in, to, so they're willing to give him bits of Czechoslovakia, uh, so that he would attack Russia and leave their empire, well, the British Empire, leave it alone. We often forget that, that what we were defending against Hitler was not just peace, democracy, democracy only in Europe, mm. but in the rest of the world, it was a slave empire. It was the British Empire. The yes, Indians so. didn't have a say. Nobody else had a say. And the uh, defence was to defend the British Empire. Anyway, we're getting... So, no, no, but see, this is, again, the importance of history. So let's cycle back to our current coalition. And you mentioned two things before. One, you mentioned in terms of the importance of history and actually having any politicians that are aware of any of these things that go on. And the other was um, in terms of having a devil's advocate, someone to play that contrary point of view. Now... As far as I'm concerned, I do believe that we have a political tuatara that could potentially fill that role, uh, who's now made his way back to Parliament in Winston Peters. Uh, and he's kind of, you know, kicked off in that direction. What are your thoughts with, with Winston? Because he's, I mean, he was around when you were around. Yes. Uh, he's yes, and he's, we're, we're he's got a long memory. <laughs> we're contemporaries, and I? I have yeah. the honour of having been pushed by him once and he apolog in Parliament, and he apologised, you know, physically pushed. He um, came and bought me a, a beer as a as a token of uh, peacemaking. This is a pretty New Zealand thing to do, uh, pretty male New Zealand thing to do. <laughs> but because uh, it was probably alcohol which fueled his problem in the beginning. Anyway, um, I think it's sad that he's there as the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand. I think it shows that we haven't made progress on the key issues. He's an obstacle 
So here I'm being self-opinionated, and next day you can have him on the program. Mm. He can uh, say. So what? Why do you believe he will be an obstacle, and what because, respect? Because he's the ultimate uh, opportunist in politics. He doesn't care uh, the issue that he picks up on the principle of it. He doesn't believe in it. Um, will it get him? enough votes from people from any sector of the community to get him into a position where you know he's in, he's in power of some sort so he started off his party the big attack and we've forgotten was on the chinese so he was he was a responsible politician who used that old racist trope two wongs don't make a white and when he was taken up on it I think it was the early 2000s. When you've taken up on it, you said, oh, it's a joke, you know. Is it a joke if you're Chinese? Two Wongs don't make a white. And then he, I remember being at a political meeting in about 1995, and he pointed his finger at Howick, the Auckland suburb of Howick, where a lot of Chinese immigrants live, and called it Chowick. So he was building upon that sort of, oh, we don't like the Chinese. When people weren't frightened of the Chinese anymore, well, there might have been still residual racism, uh, he moved on to Muslims, so everybody was a Muslim. And I've seen him in Parliament. Just one time in Parliament, when I was there. He accused a engineer, Iraqi engineer in Auckland, and another Iraqi. One of them as being the involved as an advisor or the police chief in Baghdad. This is at the height of you know uh, ISIS and, and worries about Muslim terrorism. No proof. Nothing. No apology to these people. Was checked. They had. They came to me. I took it up in Parliament. And I took it up, please. He was willing to destroy them. So I've seen him in his political career choose one issue, uh, and he he spots it. He waits, and then he just exaggerates and cries. Mm -hmm. that. And there's a whole lot of people who say, "Oh, Winston's right. He's calling things as it was." And then when he gets in there, you know, the baubles of power. He doesn't do a thing uh, that's, that's that's really at the core of what people are worried about, their insecurity. Mm. That's not to say that some of his policies can't be good. I mean, you know, that, mm. that do things as a party that... Um, that so... But as a so, politician. Yeah, so, I mean, so, right, so the political wrecking ball of Winston Peters to one side. Who else do you believe is, is then left to take up the mantle of being able to bring these discussions to the table, whether or not they're in the current coalition or in the opposition, which I actually see is vastly more inexperienced than, than what we have on. I mean, there is not a lot of depth on the bench, to be fair, well, Matt. No, that's, I, I looked, I've looked at things. I looked at, <clears throat> I come from the left wing of politics, so I looked to anybody coming out there. I looked at the Labour list and I was appalled at, at the lack of, um, anybody to stand up on uh, and, and really have a principal position and a clear position. Um, I mean, I felt that Christopher Hip Labour caused its own demise. They, for, for instance, in my opinion, they didn't take up the central question of wealth inequality in New Zealand. It's an obscene crying shame, and the, the statistics are there, the data is there, to show that the richest New Zealanders have got away with tax murder and 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 the wealth created by well COVID showed us where the wealth is produced we couldn't get by without the humble people stacking the shelves we couldn't get by with all those humble people working when i say humble they don't beat their own chest in in agriculture in in our society so all the nurses well they've forgotten their working class roots and they they've gone and they, followed an identitarian sort of model they've completely forgotten where they, they've come from the lowest paid amongst us keep us going not necessarily mm -hmm. the most wealthiest and who own property etc now getting at that and using that wealth which is collectively produced collectively that leads to you know accusations of uh, communism and and you know, and, and um, the wealthy are jealous and that type of thing. But put that aside. Uh, he neither Chris Hipkins or before him Jacinda Ardern would tackle that question. So when David Parker actually brought it up and said, at the root of our one of our problems of the ability to move on all of the key issues, whatever they are, climate change, uh, health, education, growing the economy. You've also got to tackle wealth inequality. It's not just me, David Parker, saying it. Now, he, he had a principal position on this. I, I spoke to him about it, and he researched it, and he thought about it. 
because it's just not in New Zealand. It's an international phenomenon. Uh, people, economists like Piketty have written about it. Uh, American economist uh, James Galbraith Jr. has written about it. a whole range of, of across the world. It was one of the things that came up in the in the British Labour Party in the big debates. It wasn't over Jeremy Corbyn. It wasn't just Jeremy Corbyn not being liked by this or that person. It was also a question over uh, they were taking up the question of inequality, much as what Parker did. So it's an international phenomenon. But anyway, he got shut down because uh, the leadership, both under Jacinda and under Chris, uh, were frightened to take up this question. That's the key question, not the posturing of of a Winston Peters skating on the surface of issues, finding easy solutions, blame Murray, blame old people, blame this person, blame that person. No, you talk about what are the issues, and David Parker, God bless him, he did raise that and put it in the front. Whether he can carry it through, because there's that dreaded thing of charisma. I'm sick mm. of charisma. There was a horse, as far as I know. Who didn't we win a medal with the horse? Yeah, correct, yeah. Mark Todd's horse. horse. Right. Bla- Bla- Blair-, Blair Tate or Blair Tate? Or no, that? that was Mark Todd. Mark Todd, okay. Okay. I'm not a great follower of all these things, but I knew there was a horse and I liked the horse. Charisma. But how? who wants to be governed by charisma? Mm. You know, I mean... Uh, Adolf Hitler had charisma. I met a friend of mine, German friend, her mother, lovely person, uh, quite simple. I mean, not in the sense of intelligence, but you know, modest upbringing. She loved Hitler. <laughs> she, she didn't say it she, because why did she love him? He had such beautiful blue eyes. Now, that's not exactly a good reason for wanting to follow a politician, but he had charisma. That's what I was told. He had charisma. And so they go looking for someone. We go as New Zealanders looking for someone who's got charisma. How many times have people been fooled because somebody is, is a snake oil's charms? So I, I guess Winston Peters has got some of that X factor. I don't know. You know they got a smile and, and they take him up. But that's not a basis for good government. So I'd rather have somebody who was modest and no charisma, but knew what they were talking about and was telling me the truth. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't see that. But you're no. asking my my opinion. Well, I'm a little bit towards some of the Greens. That's all. Some of them, I've, I've, for instance, uh, I'll give you a name. I think Josefo Collins, who stood for the mayor of Auckland, uh, is genuine. He was, as a councillor, he um, impressed me with the work he did uh, for his communities in in South Auckland. By the way, he spoke up on the council for uh, Aucklanders uh, and 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 working class Aucklanders. Uh, and now he's a member of parliament, so we'll see how he goes. Yeah, but the, he would be interesting because, I mean, I see the Greens have been very much captured by sort of a neo-Marxist identitarian type. They've actually lost, again, they've lost, where they, they're not the party of Jeanette Fitzsimons and, and Rod well, Norman anymore. And in a Fesso Collins that could actually potentially bring them back to that place. So I'd be, I'd love to get you back, Matt. I feel that you and I could talk for a long time on a lot of things. So I think we're going to bench that for 2024, and I'm definitely going to get you back. I've been talking to Matt Robson, former MP for the Alliance Party and lawyer for the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms here on Counterculture. Thank you so much. It's been, I've, I've been riveted. I've just looked at the time and I thought, <laughs> so thank you so, so much, Matt. I do appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.